Hello and welcome to this episode of the Fitness Unfiltered podcast. I have with me my amazing co-host Mike and Dan. Mike, how are you? I'm fine. Dan, how are you? I'm very fine. I'm very excited about this episode. I am very excited about this episode and I have been pestering Mike to find one of his GP colleagues who specializes in this area and finally we have someone on who is an absolute expert who has written an amazing book and who is going to tell us all about the menopause. We have Dr. Philippa Kay on the podcast. How are you? Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Good, good. Um, so yes, I've been reading your book. Well, actually, I've been listening to your book, which is brilliant. And, and I really enjoyed listening to it, partly because I'm not that good at reading and partly because the mannerism in, in which you speak comes across in such an empathetic way that really breaks it down. And you have this amazing ability to make you feel like very confident in your knowledge, but also so reassured about the whole process. So I think if anyone is struggling with the menopause at the moment, I would recommend the book, but I would also recommend the audio book because Thank I you. found that. So, so I recorded that um, pre-lockdown but it might as well have been in lockdown because you sit in a cupboard that's got those soundproof egg things on the wall in the dark for three days. And Why in the dark? I don't know. In the dark with just, <laughs> just the screen on with the book on it and a producer who can hear everything. So every swallow, every everything <laughs> makes you slightly paranoid. So recording an audiobook is, is always an interesting experience some sort of weird sensory deprivation to make you ultra focused on every single word <laughs> i think or maybe it's so that they can hear everything so that they can hear when you need a drink or when they need to remove an intake of breath or something but it's a very odd experience oh oh interesting okay so should we start with the real basics of some of the definitions like what is the menopause what is perimenopause what is postmenopause? just so we know going forward what we're talking about when we say each word sure so um and i think half of the issue is that women um and men don't know what the menopause is and that's because we don't talk about it and we may have been told about birds and the bees and where babies come from and how not to make babies and that might have been our mums or our teachers or our friends in the playground but nobody said a word about the menopause um and so that's essentially initially where that confusion comes from. And then you add into the fact that essentially we still live in a society where women's health is dirty and shameful. So we must not talk about it. Um, so let's start with some definitions. The menopause literally means the last period. Um, and it's what we call a diagnosis of retrospect. So looking back, and we can't say that you've been through the menopause until you have not bled for one year. But just in the same way that puberty took you eight to 10 years, so does the period of hormonal change that leads up to the menopause. And that's called the perimenopause or the climacteric. So you can have symptoms even if you're still having periods which might be regular. And then postmenopause is that time after you haven't bled for a year. Now, the average age for the menopause in the UK is 51. The average age of female life expectancy is about 80. So we are living approximately one third of our lives in a postmenopausal state. It's really fascinating because I think when you say perimenopausal as well, 
there you are, Philippa. <laughs> we lost you for a second there. Um, because uh, apart from the obvious, and you mentioned not bleeding for a year, is I think there's a few symptoms people associate with, but it's quite a vast list. It's not just the obvious. It's not just a little bit of brain fog, as some would describe it. It's not just the night sweats. It's quite an extensive list, isn't it? So it, it's a lot broader, I think, than even women tend to think. And when they come in to see me with one symptom and then I ask them about others, um, often the floodgates will open. Um, first of all, you can have symptoms around the time of the perimenopause or the menopause. You can have symptoms a few years after and you can have conditions that are linked to it, but many years after. So it's related to estrogen deficiency. We have three major sex hormones as women, estrogen, progesterone and testosterone. Women produce testosterone too. It's often thought of as the male sex hormone, but it's what gives you your oomph, your get up and go. Um, and as those hormone levels decline, you can either have symptoms straight away or as time goes on or later on in life. So around the time of the perimenopause and the menopause, the symptoms, I would split them into the physical, the psychological, and then the aesthetic. So if we do the physical first, the most common symptom and the one that people have most heard of are hot flushes and sweats. Now you think, okay, you get a bit hot, but actually what I'm talking about is ring out your pajamas sweats. Um, I'm standing up in front of work to give a work presentation and actually you can see my underwear because I have soaked through my clothes level of sweats and that can have a real impact on people's lives. Other physical symptoms, joint pains, palpitations, itchy skin, difficulty sleeping and uh, loss of libido, so loss of sex drive. If we move on to the psychological, low mood and depression, um, anxiety, as you mentioned, the menopausal brain fog, which is difficulties with memory and concentration, and that can impact on everything, including your ability to function at work. And many menopausal women will consider giving up work around the time of the menopause. And then I'm going to put insomnia and loss of libido in the psychological section, as well as in the physical section, because there will be um, interplay between the two. And then there are physical changes that women will notice, which are more aesthetic. So hair changes you often will get thinning of the hair um around the temples so sort of like male pattern loss and um, women might notice that hair is growing in unwanted places the breast tissue changes the skin changes and that's essentially um due again to the changes in hormones but um your skin essentially becomes less good at not aging so you might notice wrinkles fat gets put down in different places you're more likely um before you go through the menopause women lay down fat in the breasts and the hips and then after the menopause much more in a male pattern apple shape around the tummy so it really can affect everything and whilst we are really kind to teenagers and we say they're grumpy and they need to sleep a lot because they're hormonal and that's okay we are not kind to each other as women and we really need to be there are receptors for these hormones all over your body not just in your reproductive sim uh, system. And that means you can get symptoms all over your body. More longer term symptoms, so in the few years after the menopause, um, people will start noticing things like vaginal dryness, which can lead to severe irritation and painful sex, um, and issues like stress incontinence can get worse. And then over time, if we think of the menopause as a long-term estrogen deficiency state it is linked to an increased risk 
of um, conditions like osteoporosis, where the bones become very thin and brittle, and an increased risk of heart attack, stroke, and dementia. So in their 30s and 40s, women are far less likely to have a heart attack than men. And that's due to the protective effects of estrogen. And it's as time passes that those effects get lost. So you can have symptoms, unfortunately, from 40 or even 30 or even 20, if we're talking about premature menopause, for a long, long time. But that doesn't mean that there isn't something we can do about it. Yeah, that's what I was just about to ask. So that all sounds quite scary and daunting. But when you break it down into what treatments that we have available now and make it sort of more common knowledge that you don't just have to put up with these side effects, that there are certain things you can do, uh, that that becomes a lot less scary for women who are either going through or who will eventually go through the menopause. So the first thing to say is that I can treat you, and by I, I mean doctors, um, can treat you whether or not you're having your periods. So what I didn't mention is what can happen to your periods around the time of the menopause. Now, some women's periods go quietly and they get further and further and further apart and lighter and lighter and lighter. And other people's periods rage against the dying of the light and they come more and more frequently and they last longer and longer and they're really monstrously heavy um, and flooding. It doesn't matter if you're person A or person B, if you've got symptoms and you are not managing, there are things that we can do about it. And people often say, well, how do I know when to come? That's the point when to come, when you're not managing, when you think this isn't right, I don't feel right, that's when you come. Mm -hmm. And so what are the, some of the treatments that, that you have available? So the first thing to, I would just backtrack one step, which is to do with testing, because that's something that people think that they need to have before they get any treatment. Do I need a blood test doctor? Um, and the answer to that is it depends how old you are. If you are over the age of 45 and probably after the age of 40 and you've got symptoms, I don't need to give you a blood test. And this is why I am testing the hormones in your brain called FSH and LH that kickstart your ovaries to go. OK, they kickstart that menstrual cycle. If there are no eggs left, your brain is going to pump out loads and loads and loads of that hormone and say, come on, come on, come on, ovaries, let's go, let's go, let's go. And those levels are going to be really high. And that would suggest that you are menopausal. Here's the kicker. Around the time of the perimenopause, one month you might ovulate, then you might not for three months, then you might for three months, then you might not for two months. So those hormone levels are going to go up and down and essentially are meaningless. So if you are um, somebody that needs treatment and you are in your 40s, we are going to treat you. I have a proviso. If you are under the age of 40 and you've lost your period for more than six months after it started, had started regularly before, you need to see your doctor. That doesn't mean that you are definitely in the premature menopause. There are lots and lots of causes um, of losing your period, anything from medication that you could be taking to thyroid problems, but we need to check and at that point, I would check those hormone levels because in the under 40s, it is different. And one in 100 women under the age of 40, one in 1,000 women under the age of 30, and one in 10,000 women under the age of 20 will go through a premature menopause. And is there anything that like causes that apart from obviously... I don't know, having a hysterectomy, which would be quite an obvious cause. Is, is there anything that seems to cause earlier menopause or increases so your I've risk? I've just realised of... I haven't answered your, your question about treatment. So remind me to come back to that. Um, yeah, we'll so come back to that. 
your premature menopause um, is called essentially a premature ovarian insufficiency and in that your ovaries sort of have run out of eggs earlier than we would expect. Now, sometimes we do that to you surgically um, and that's when we remove them. For example, if you've had a cancer, that's an oophorectomy. You mentioned hysterectomy, that's when you remove the womb. And even if you leave the ovaries in, um, the in general, women will go through the menopause a couple of years earlier than expected, even if you've left the ovaries in. There are lots of autoimmune conditions. So where the body attacks itself, things like thyroid problems or type 1 diabetes. And it may be that the body chooses to attack the ovaries. And that might be um, why they shut down early. But essentially for lots of women, we don't know why it happens. It seems to run in families more. Um, but smokers go through the menopause uh, uh, on average a little bit earlier than non-smokers. So that's something that you can do to prevent it, but there isn't much else that you can do currently. So sorry, treatment. Okay, and then... Sorry, you cut out? Oh, sorry, I was just saying, yeah, go ahead with treatments. Okay, so um, treatments are probably the most controversial area of the menopause. Um, and HRT is either the big bad wolf of the women's health world, or it's a gleaming panacea that is going to solve all your problems. And um, people seem to fall into one camp or the other. And the truth is like everything in medicine and everything in life, it's a risk versus benefit um, balancing act. Now, the reason I think that there is so much controversy is because what doctors think has changed over the years. Um, and often in the media, I get I, that that's something that, that people use to attack doctors. Well, the reason that we change is because the evidence changes. And that's a good thing. You want us to change our mind when the evidence points us in a different direction. So HRT was discovered in the 60s. Um, and the first one was called Premarin. Um, and the reason it was called that was because it became from pregnant, so that's the prebit, mares, so female horses, urine, premarin, um, and we don't make it from that anymore. Uh, <laughs> that's the first thing. Um, but they did a big study in around the 2000s, and what they were looking at were women who started HRT in their 60s. So more than 10 years after they stopped the menopause, uh, after they stopped their periods, and they used what they had at the time, which was much older fashioned forms of HRT. And they discovered that there was an increased risk of um, breast cancer and of blood clots in the legs and blood clots in the lungs, heart attacks and strokes. And so GPs took everybody off it because that's what seemed to be safer. That was 20 years ago. We have done an awful lot of research since then. And interestingly, the authors of that study did something that scientific um, scientists never do, which is apologize for essentially the harm that they have done for postmenopausal women around the world in that um, women are now so afraid of being on HRT. So I'm going to run through HRT really quickly. It's risks and it's benefits because it's up to everybody out there to make their own decision about that risk benefit analysis. So HRT does what it says on the tin, hormone replacement therapy. We are replacing what you are missing. That's always estrogen. If you have a womb, you have to have progesterone as well. Otherwise, estrogen on its own increase your risk of womb cancer. But as long as I give you progesterone, there is no increased risk of that. Full stop. Sometimes we add in testosterone as well. It gives you back, as I said, your get up and go, your energy and your libido. But not. we don't always do that. So 
for women who are taking HRT, what are the benefits? First of all, you get your life back. You, your symptoms become under control. And I can't overestimate how significant those um, symptoms can be and how they can impact on every relationship that you have, be that personal, sexual, with your children, work life, everything. It impacts on everything. And taking away those symptoms and giving women back their life is huge. It also then decreases your risk of developing osteoporosis, certain forms of cancer like colorectal cancer, um, dementia, heart attack and stroke, as long as we deliver them in the right way. The risks. Breast cancer is the one that everybody's heard of. It's the biggie. First of all, if you are able to have estrogen only can um, HRT, so if you don't have a womb, then that risk is really, really tiny. Um, to, and in some studies, they say that risk is, it doesn't exist at all. If we're giving estrogen and progesterone together, there is a small increased risk. Now, I've got to put that in context for you. Between the ages of 50 and 59, 23 women out of every thousand will have breast cancer anyway. If they are on HRT, four more are going to get breast cancer. OK, so I've gone from um, 23 cases per thousand to 27. If you smoke, if you drink over the recommended amounts of uh, alcohol units per week, those cases go up by three and five, respectively. If you have obesity, those cases go up by 23 per thousand. So if you put it into context with things that people are doing anyway and don't think about, that risk is really small when balanced against all of those positive things that it can do. The risks of things like blood clots in the legs and the lungs, they come if you take estrogen orally because the estrogen has to go through the liver and the liver is involved in uh, producing the factors that make your blood clot. As long as I give you your estrogen through your skin, be it in a gel or a patch or a cream, then there is no increased risk at all. And the rule of thumb is this, under the age of 50, if you have a premature menopause, um, there is no increased risk of having HRT. I am simply replacing the hormones which would ordinarily be there. Between the ages of 50 and 60, for most women, the benefit outweighs the risk. Between 60 and 70, to start HRT, not to stop it, to start it, the benefit and the risk are about the same. And to start it over the age of 70, in general, the risks outweigh the benefits. But as long as you're starting it in your 50s, so within 10 years of the menopause, generally, if you're someone who hasn't had breast cancer, for example, the benefits outweigh the risk. And once you start it, when you stop it is entirely up to you. There is no stopping point for HRT as long as those benefits continue to outweigh the risk. So don't think you have to be on it for one year or five years. You can be on it as long as you need to, as long as you have a blood pressure check every year with your doctor and that you regularly examine your breasts. If something changes, if you suddenly develop breast cancer, then yes, we're going to change what you're on. But for women whose benefits continue to outweigh those risks, they can continue. And if you can't have HRT, mm. there are lots of other things we can do. So I was just going to ask, because I've, I mean, those stats are amazing. And I think it's brilliant that you've put them into context because we often hear just, it will increase your risk and think, well, then I'm not going to take it. So hearing the context is so useful, but I also wondered why over 70, why is starting it later? Is that just because your body's got used to not having those hormones? 
So it's a combination of things. There, there, some of it is around the fact that you've been so long without estrogen. What's the effect of restarting it? Um, but secondly, you're much more likely to have something else going on with you already, be that high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, already have had a heart condition, already have had a breast condition. So it's those other things that sort of um, click on. And as I said, that's a very general rule of thumb. That doesn't mean that it, it might not be different for you. Yeah. I just wanted to touch on that point you mentioned as well, Philippa, that um, that awareness as in women need to know how their bodies regularly function to identify these things and quite possibly what checks they could be doing on themselves or things that they could be aware of. Or is it just be aware of absolutely everything? And if you're unsure about something, just visit your GP. Have you heard of the um, charity, the Eve Appeal, which is the UK's gynecological charity? It covers five gyne cancers, which... Um, from I guess from the inside out would be ovarian uterine which is your womb cervix which is the top of the vagina the entrance to the womb vaginal and vulval vulval being your external genitalia and their campaign is generally called know your normal um, and that's because as women well actually as all of us as long as you know you're normal then you can recognize what's not normal for you and it's when something is not normal for you that you then go and see the doctor be that about your menstrual cycle or anything else um, and with regards to um things like your periods and what what's going to be happening is that essentially women get used to whatever their normal is and then it changes around the time of the menopause but really importantly if you have not bled for one year if you are menopausal and you start to bleed again that is classified as a postmenopausal bleed and that must see your gp that is potentially a sign of womb cancer doesn't necessarily mean that you have it but that is definitely something that you cannot ignore Really important point, I think, for our listeners. And, yeah, and one of the most common side effects of menopause that I know a lot of my clients and I know Dan's clients sort of struggle with is putting on body fat. And you've spoken a little about a bit about the redistribution of body fat. But a few other things happen, don't they, that you could have a lower basal metabolic rate, meaning yeah. that you need less calories to maintain that weight. Do you want to speak a little bit about fat gain during the menopause? So um it's it's common that women tend to gain weight around the time of menopause. And then the question they always have is, is HRT going to make me put on weight? Um, and, and that's a really common concern. Estrogen, as I said, affects everything, including your BMR, your basal metabolic rate, which means that you need less calories essentially to function. Um, and any excess calories that you have, as we know, are laid down as fat. Um, and around the time of the menopause, they are laid down, as I said, in different places. HRT does not make you put on weight. HRT um, is one going to take away your joint pains and your fatigue and you're feeling like crap, which means you're more likely to exercise and less likely to eat rubbish. Um, or, not that rubbish is bad. No, that's terrible. <laughs> no, I, I don't subscribe to food being bad. But as in, we all know that when we are sad and we are in pain and when we don't have any energy, we are more likely to choose less nutritionally dense food, shall we say. Um, and HRT often solves the problems that that then are all linked, linked together with that. So HRT doesn't make you put on weight. Unfortunately, hormonal changes don't help you um, try and stay at the same weight as before. Yeah, because that's an interesting point that crops up quite often, I think, with clients, is that your body can't 
store calories that aren't there, but they often think they're the things underlying, which they are, they're underlying the choices that they make sometimes. So as you said, it's the more calorie dense, highly palatable options they might gravitate towards, especially when they're not exercising, which is the bigger issue, not necessarily and, with a And HRT we do have to, to say, as always, that um, it's not as simple as choices and different people make choices from different cupboards. Um, and by cupboards, I don't mean food cupboards, I mean, financial, socioeconomic, educational, genetic cupboards. Um, so, you know, it's not as simple as as you can't lay down fat from calories that aren't there when what calories are there um, can be extremely complicated. Mm. Um, but it is true to say that the hormonal changes around the time of the menopause means that you are more likely to gain weight. And in terms of diet and exercise so let's start with diet is there anything you should be avoiding some people say to avoid soy or is there any truth in that or certain nutrients that may benefit symptoms so um it, it depends on your symptom really if you have hot flushes and sweats then avoiding caffeine avoiding spicy foods can be useful um if you're talking about what can you do to ease symptoms soy is considered a good thing not a bad thing um that contains something called phytoestrogens phytoestrogens are plant-based estrogens they're found in food like soy tofu mushrooms cucumber um and it appears to be that in areas of the world where those foods are eaten more commonly that women seem to have fewer symptoms related to the menopause or less severe symptoms related to the menopause now that's a very general statement that doesn't take into account cultural um, discussions around the menopause, what's acceptable to talk about, what's not acceptable to talk about, um, and all kinds of things. It also doesn't tell me, and this is what we don't know, how much cucumber do I have to eat? Do I have to eat four buckets a day or one bucket a day of cucumber um, to get enough phytoestrogen? And I don't, no one knows the answer yet. So we need to do a lot more research, but also, do I need to have been eating those phytoestrogens my whole life or just around the time of the perimenopause. And so there's a lot more research that needs to be done from the point of view of um, phytoestrogens in plant-based foods. There are certain herbal um, remedies, which for some of them there's evidence for, and even um, for some of them there's evidence against, and for some of them there's evidence that's confusing um, because it's actually really difficult to get what Western doctors like, which is a randomized controlled double blind study it's really hard to get that if you are talking about something like acupuncture i'm pretty sure i would know whether or not i had acupuncture you can't give me placebo acupuncture so it's really difficult to get the kind of evidence that pharmaceutical companies like um, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't work and if it doesn't mean that it doesn't work it also doesn't mean that it doesn't cause harm so first of all, with any herbal remedy, please make sure that you talk to your pharmacist to make sure it doesn't interrupt with anything that you are already taking. But things which are commonly talked about are things like sage, red clover, black cohosh, agnus castus, evening primrose oil. Don't start them all at once, otherwise you're not going to know what's working for you um, one at a time. Now, for people who are going down that route, often they're going down that route because they don't want to use HRT, but I have other prescribable medications which are not HRT, which can be effective. We use things like SSRI antidepressants. That does not mean that I think that you are depressed. I use them for lots of things that aren't necessarily depression or anxiety, and they can work well for hot flushes and sweats. 
Um, and we have anti-epileptic medicine, so anti-seizure medication, um, which again can work well for some of those physical symptoms. And that doesn't mean that I think that you have epilepsy. Doctors use medicines, what we call off-license, all the time. If your symptoms are mainly around vaginal dryness or painful sex, then I can give you, there, there are particular lubricants which are much better there are, um, than the lubricants available over the counter. The brands that I normally recommend are Yes or Silk. And um, if you're using Yes, the best one, the best thing to use is something called the double glide effect. I'm going to go a little graphic here. There are two kinds of lubricant. One is oil-based, one is water-based. Oil-based um, lubricants don't work with condoms. They eat condoms. So if you're using condoms, you can't use it. But for the double glide effect, we are relying on the um, physical property, which is the oil and water don't mix. So if you put the oil-based lubricant inside your vagina and then the water-based lubricant either goes on the sex toy or the male penis or the finger or whatever. Um, and because oil and water don't mix, one glides over the other and that produces a really natural feeling um, effect. So lubricants make a real difference. Vaginal moisturizers make a difference. But I can give you vaginal estrogen um, pessaries which go inside the vagina and using them for a whole year is the same as taking one or two tablets of oral HRT so those risks are negligible so don't think I don't want to have HRT there's nothing out there for me there is still plenty of stuff out there for you and a final word on what people call bioidentical hormones or bioidentical HRT which is both fashionable and controversial right now bioidentical HRT is uh where where some doctors some other professionals say that they are using plant-based um estrogen, progesterone and testosterone, which is the same as the chemical compounds in your body. And they compound them together as a cream. And they are touted to be as effective and safer. Here's the kicker. I can give you what I would call body identical HRT, exactly the same chemical structure as the forms of estrogen and progesterone, which are already naturally in your body. Originally, they kind of came from yams. We're now making them in a factory, but the chemical structure is exactly the same. And I know what the safety and efficacy data are for those. We do not know that about bioidentical HRT. And therefore, we cannot say that it is safe. Can I just ask a question that some people listening might not might not realise the answer to? Um, the reason I said it like that is because I don't want people to think I don't know the answer to this because I am supposed to be a doctor as well. But I just want to put that out there. Um, when you mentioned about sort of people using condoms, can you talk a little bit about why? Because um, a lot of people who are listening might think, well, why would we be worried about condoms if we're menopausal, etc.? Um, can you talk a little bit about why things like contraception can still be important around that time? Okay, so sex matters. Doesn't matter if you're 20 or 50 or 80, sex matters, right? Um, and that's why I often talk about vaginal dryness, which I've talked about, and loss of libido, um, and that can be helped with HRT. And as I said, testosterone often really helps with that. Um, and your libido is a really complicated thing as a woman. If it was as easy as taking that little blue diamond Viagra pill, then the pharmaceutical companies would have made a killing ages ago. Um, but it isn't as simple as that. And there are very complex physical and psychological factors that play together especially around the time of the menopause. If you are anxious, if you are depressed, if you have issues with um, body self-image, you're not gonna want to have sex before I even add in vaginal dryness and pain. Um, 
and just sort of, you know, lack of get up and go in general. But as I said, we have treatment for all of those. Once I give you back your sex drive, you still need to be safe. And that is because you can still ovulate even after that last period. So if you are under the 50 and you go through the menopause, you have not bled in one year, you need to use a form of contraception for a further two years. If you go through the menopause after the age of 50, so you have not bled for one year, you need to use contraception for one year only. If you get to 55 and you're still having periods, good for you, um, but your risk of pregnancy is so small, then you don't need to use contraception anymore, unless we are talking about protecting against STDs. There are two big groups which um, the number of STDs are on the rise. That's in young people. And the second is in elderly people over 60s. And that I sort of, you know, I can understand as a woman, you might go, well, no risk of babies now. Well, don't need to do anything else. But actually only a condom is going to protect you against chlamydia, gonorrhea, and all the other kinds um, of STIs which are out there. And as I said, water-based lubricants are fine with condoms, but if you're using a condom, you can't use an oil-based lubricant. Thank you. Glad <laughs> we cleared that up. Thank you, Mike. Um, okay, so the other part of that question I wanted to ask was exercise. Is there anything that should be avoided, should be especially encouraged um, around menopause or perimenopause? So exercise is always a good thing. Um, and by exercise, I mean physical activity. Um, I don't mind what you do, just do what you like quite frankly. Um, but when we are talking about women's health, we need to add in some weight bearing exercise. So it is the pounding of the joints essentially against gravity that causes a little bit of breakdown of the bones, which then stimulates the body to repair that and lay down bone mass. So actually from, from puberty onwards, women need to be doing weight bearing exercise in order that they have a healthy bone mass before they hit the menopause. Because after that, the effects of the long-term loss of estrogen has an effect on those cells which are laying down bones because your bones aren't dead. Your bones are these active, living, regenerating things, really. Um, and so you want to have as good a bone mass as you can before you hit the menopause um, because afterwards the bones are likely to become thinner over time. So definitely weight-bearing exercise. Women are often worried if they are flushing and sweating, um, I don't want to exercise because I'm going to end up in a hot flush. Initially, they might make them worse, but in the long term, they make them far better. Um, so exercising through, and as I said, doesn't matter what it is that we do, there is you know, nothing wrong with walking at all. Walking is a fantastic form of exercise. Um, then it, it will tend to make symptoms like flushes and sweats better. It also improves mood. It improves sleep. It improves all kinds of things. Exercise is not going to cause you harm. Excellent. And then this is just a question that I have been thinking as you've been talking, especially about the drop in estrogen. Do women who are experiencing amenorrhea for various other reasons, potentially even if they're over-exercising, are they at risk as well of some of the complications of not having having estrogen? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's why doctors take it so seriously. Um, and that's why if you have started your periods and you have regular periods um, and then the periods go away for more than six months, your doctor wants to know about it because you have essentially for whatever reason, 
you are in an estrogen deficient state. Now, sometimes we do that to you we, we, with, with medication. I, you know, there's a form of contraception that can do that. And if you're on it for more than a few years, we, we start thinking about your bone density. But especially for um, women who have issues around um, excessive potential, excessive clean eating or over-exercising or who might be sort of heading towards that orthorexia um, type group, then yes, if you are losing your periods because you've turned your menstrual cycle off, then you don't have as much estrogen. Now, estrogen is not just made in the ovaries. That's where the most potent form of estrogen is made, but it's also made in your fat cells. Um, and so actually, if you become too lean, then you're not producing it from the second source that you could have been producing it um, from. And as I said, you know, a lack of estrogen has long term risks for your health. So whatever reason you lose your period for, you need to go and see your GP. Brilliant. Um, is there anything else that you guys wanted to cover? They've been very quiet, the boys. I think sometimes it's, it's, a good, it's good just to shut your mouth and listen. And I, I feel like this was especially one of those episodes because it is, it's one of those subjects that does come up with clients and it has done. Um, I like to think that, you know, female clients I work with, they're quite happy to talk about their menstrual cycles and things like that, but it's not always something that's encouraged. And it has been sometimes a question that I've asked and it's, oh, do I, you know, because as, as you mentioned, it's kind of a taboo thing. Women aren't always encouraged to talk about their bodily functions, perhaps as openly as men. So um, it's something I've certainly enjoyed learning a lot more about. But because um, there's, there's extreme ends as well, as you suggested. So I've had clients that have gone through the menopause, that have gone straight through it, nothing, no symptoms at all. And then I can think of others that they just can't get by day to day where they're, you know, they're not sleeping at all, where they're hot uh, hot flushes are so severe they can't work and everything else so it's it's quite I, I think listening to this would be refreshing for them to realize they're not alone because perhaps some of the friends they would have spoken to about it don't really notice their gags for it so they ultimately think there's something really severely wrong with them because they're really suffering so 80 percent of women will have some form of symptom um, and the level of severity of that will change and um, I think that there is a a sort of larger societal issue when in june 2018 the deputy governor of the bank of england describes the economy of, as menopausal to mean sort of stagnant and past its best it's not a wonder that in a society which if you think about sort of a hundred years ago women were valued for their looks and their ability to produce children and after the menopause you no longer have the ability to produce children and your looks change and so it has been assumed for millennia that women are not necessarily worth something in that last um, period of their lives now 100 200 300 years ago women didn't really live past the time of their menopause and when you look at the mammalian world there's actually very few mammals which are like us and have a period of time after um, our reproductive lives end it's us and some kind of pilot whale or something um and and you sort of think why and this was the bit of the book that in a way for me was the most interesting bit which was the sort of the anthropological existential why is this happening to me and there's lots of reasons about things like the the role of the grandmother um, and how important that is in our society but actually if you look at a culture uh, a matriarchal culture like elephants they don't go through the menopause or they do and then they die. Um, there are issues about sort of sharing of genes and sharing of resources. But at the end of the day, it might be something as simple as we are living longer than we ever did. And bits of us wear out faster than others. But 
there are lots of things in the insect world which have a post-reproductive state. I can't say they're menopausal because they didn't really have periods like, like humans do. But there is a particular kind of locust um, somewhere in Asia. And the, the females of this kind of locust, and I didn't put this in the book, and I talk about this story all the time, and I don't know why it isn't in the N word, but it isn't. Um, and when the colony is under attack, the colony sends all its postmenopausal females out there to defend the colony, right? And 50 years ago, I think that we would have said as a society too, right, those, uh, those female locusts, they should go and commit harakiri because they are worthless now, they're past their best. And I view that little colony of locusts and I say they're sending out the women with wisdom. They are sending out the females with all the power of of the years of experience that they have had and potentially now free from the burdens of periods and the burdens of childcare and whatever other burdens society have put them on. And they are using that wisdom to defend the colony. And actually, I'm going to live a third of my life in a postmenopausal state. And I don't want to be past my best. I want to be happy and thriving. And I want the message to be out there to every woman that you can do that too. You have to get empowered and then you have to ask for help. There is that sort of level of um, like, like unnecessary acceptance, isn't there? Like, oh, it's just my menopause. And I, I, I notice this as a GP a lot when, you know, people, you might ask them questions about other symptoms that they might be experiencing to do with the, the, the condition that they've presented with. And they might be like, oh yeah, well, I do have heart flashes, but that's just, that's mm. just the menopause. I've just always put that down to the menopause. Not, um, I've always had this symptom and is there now something that I can do about yeah. it. So I think exactly you, you're exactly right. Is that empowerment is is really important, and I think also it's it's really tricky because like, like when you went through the symptoms of the menopause, they're hugely non-specific. There's loads of different and wide varying symptoms, and so a lot of times people are experiencing symptoms of other things, and they are putting it down to the menopause, and they're not necessarily seeking help for symptoms which they have assumed are to do with their menopause. And, and you mentioned even things like, you know, memory and, and concentration issues and people are missing sort of early dementias and stuff like that because of because of, of, of those symptoms. Or, or the exact opposite. Yeah. Is that exactly. they think that, I mean, I see women all the time that think that they've got dementia yeah. and they haven't. What they've got is symptoms of the menopause. Um, and that so many women don't know what their symptoms could be related to. They're also frightened that they are going to be labelled as somebody with a mental health problem or um, somebody with another kind of problem. They're frightened of those labels and they're accepting of things which we shouldn't be accepting of um, as humans at all. We shouldn't be accepting incontinence. We shouldn't be accepting the fact that people think that as they get older, they don't want to have sex and they don't want to have pleasurable sex. Um, and none of that is true. You just have to ask for help about it. And so what I would say is this, there are lots of people who say or who approach me and say, oh, but my GP poo pooed it or there's always I mean, there's always there's always plenty of space to bash a GP, <laughs> um, I think. But lots of us are in big practices these days um, and that we are not the old fashioned single handed GP. Ask your receptionist who has extra qualifications or an interest in women's health. If you come and see me and you want a joint injection, you have come to the wrong place. I can't do those. And I'm going to send you to my colleague down the corridor. 
If you go to him to talk about HRT, you're also in the wrong place. So what you need to do is speak to the receptionist. They will know who does what in a practice. And if there isn't somebody, or even if there is, I actually never have a problem with someone that turns up with a book or sheets printed off um, Google or wherever else. Sometimes they've gone to a site that, that doesn't make any scientific sense. And actually, that's easy to say. This isn't, you know, this is misinformation or this just isn't true for reasons X, Y and Z. But if you've taken the time to look, that means that you actually care about your health. And I'm on your team to do that. So for me, I never, ever, because people are worried, oh, won't my doctor be offended if I turn up with your book? No, I think to me, that's someone that's empowered and wants to look after your health. And that's what I want for you as well. So don't ever worry about that. Would you yeah, agree I'm there, sure Mike? They'd be, I'm sure they'd be much happier with, with your book than just something they've printed off Google, which I could imagine would get annoying. <laughs> This is what it looks like if anyone's watching on YouTube. And this is an old version. There you go. And um, the M word, everything you need to know about the menopause by me, Dr. Philippa Kay. It is available everywhere and it's available in bookshops as long as bookshops stay open. But I mean, yeah, I don't know the answer to that question at the moment. Thank you so much for sharing that locust story as well. I find that fascinating because I'm going to go and Google that and find out more about that. I, I love stuff like <laughs> that. Um, I would like to ask, if possible, I, I think we've properly covered the menopause i haven't possibly got any more questions although i might think of them afterwards would you mind sharing a little bit about your other book that's coming out my new please. book yes um, please let me find let me find one is, of those is it okay to, to tell us about one. it please <laughs> so um I'm, i uh unfortunately was well not unfortunately just in reality i was diagnosed with bowel cancer in may 2019 when i was 39 years old um and I have three young children um and I had lots of surgeries and chemotherapy over a period of time um and actually just four weeks ago I had about as big a surgery as you can possibly have um and I was in intensive care for 10 very long days in the middle of a global pandemic um and then in hospital for a period of time more and cancer is lonely um, no matter how many people you might be surrounded by, cancer is a very lonely experience. Um, and I wrote a diary as a emotional vomit onto a page as catharsis, as a way of trying to put some order onto the chaos that cancer brings. And for a very long time, that was for me and for me alone. Um, but I realized that potentially it could help people feel less alone and it could help you if you have a um, family member or a loved one who is going through because there may not be the right thing to say but there are plenty of things that annoy us if you say them um, and so I um, this comes out in February next year that's proof copy um, it's called Doctors Get Cancer Too and it is my memoir of being a doctor and a patient um, with cancer and the challenges that uh, having some knowledge brings um, and I very much that it hope that it helps some people and if you guys want to have me back nearer the time and I can do all things cancer and how to cope with living with cancer and that includes diet and exercise and how to deal with side effects and all that I'd be more than happy to come on. Yeah, we'd love we that. Thank be, you for sharing. And if you that. are interested, sorry, because my publisher should really will shout at me if I don't. It <laughs> is available for pre-order now uh, on Amazon. Uh, Doctors Get Cancer 2 by me, Dr. Philippa Kay. I'll definitely be checking that out. Um, and I, I just wanted to also just like say thank you so much for 
you know, for, for sharing that side of things, because I think it is, I think it's really tough. I, something I really struggle with as a doctor is, is sharing the personal side of, of your own journey. And it's something that um, I think is always really challenging to do because in some ways, you know, you, you want people to be able to relate to you. You want your patients to be able to talk to you more openly about stuff. You want them to know that you understand. And then there's always that little part of us that, that feels like, you know, are we being, um, are we being less professional if we break down those barriers? You know, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, historically in medicine, there's a lot of things that, that, that I think somewhat hamper our successes. And I think that's one of them. And I think it's, it goes back to a little bit about what you said earlier about doctors not being upset if you bring them, bring them literature and things. I think, you know, the medical profession has changed a lot over the past several decades and, and really gone are the times where, you know, your doctor was this paternalistic um, person who just tells you what to do. And if you don't listen to them, you'll get a dressing down the next time you go, or oh, I hope gone are those times. I think gone are those times for, for, for you know, for most of us, hopefully, um, but, but that's the point. I, I think that we, we want to work in partnership with patients. We want patients to be empowered. We understand that if we just tell you to do something that you don't want to do, or that you don't feel engaged with, or that we're not convincing you is the right thing to do, then you're not going to do it anyway. So we are not helping you. So what's the point? So, so we try not to do that. And when you are like something that really upsets me as well and I'm sorry to go on a bit of a tangent and a bit of a rant about it but you know if some people feel really brushed off by their GP as well and that's a story that I hear a lot and I think if that's happening you probably should try and speak to a different GP because we all have different personalities as well and it's it's my feeling that if if I think there's nothing wrong with somebody then it's the reason if, if I think that then it's my job to reassure them. And if I'm not able to reassure them, then we need to get to the bottom of why I can't reassure them, figure that out and use that to reassure them. So people shouldn't really be feeling dismissed by their GPs. They shouldn't be feeling like they've got something wrong with them, but their GP just won't take them seriously. And that, that's something that, that gets to me a little bit. And I think I think it comes from the fact that we all have slightly different personalities and, you know, some patients really enjoy going to, to see the GP that runs to time and that is really, you know, upfront and straightforward and takes a few minutes and then gets them out the door quickly. And then some patients like to see the GP who they don't mind the fact that they're running an hour late because they know that when they get in there, they're going to get the amount of time that they might want from that GP as well. And it's just really, really challenging. And I think it's, we have to remember that people are people and we get on with people in different ways and the doctor patient relationship will be different and what people want from it will be different. So just feel free if you don't, sorry, if you, I'm just gonna say, if, you, if you're not happy with your GP, see a different GP. And I think also that just as patients have different personalities, so do doctors. Yeah. Um, and I think that doctors have good days and bad days. But, but what you mentioned about was me talking about my own health. And actually, for a long time, um, I didn't tell my patients at all. And that's because cancer wants to take away everything from you. It wants to take away your facility to be a mum, a wife, a daughter, a sister, a friend. That's all anybody ever wants to talk to you about. And at work, you can... I could sort of step back from that um, and I could just still be Dr. K um, and that's someone who I worked my entire life to be. That's what I always wanted to be. But 
patients really appreciate it when you're very human. And, and I think as doctors, we are very scared to be too human because that means that our emotional wall has come down too much. And if we only give of ourselves, then there is nothing left. So doctors do create a form of emotional barrier. Um, and that doesn't mean that we don't care. And it doesn't mean that we're not involved. But if we didn't have that, then we would not function and we would be burnt out extraordinarily quickly. But being human, the human creeps out. And when it does creep out, and especially when it creeps out right now with young women with cancer, they really appreciate that humanity because sympathy and empathy are all well and good and they are huge. But really understanding what someone's gone through is a whole different ballgame. And that isn't to say that your GP has to have every condition. Um, we learn from our patients and we learn from books. And, and, and that's how we learn about all those different conditions and what it feels like to go through it. Um, but I don't know about you, Mike, but I, I, am, a, I am a crier if patients cry. Um, so I, when they cry, my eyes water. Um, and I often say to them, don't mind, don't mind me. This is just something that happens when my patients cry um, and that's okay. And I don't want them. And I worry that they're getting upset that they're upsetting me. They're not. I'm just feeling, it's called transference. I'm feeling a tiny bit of what they are feeling and that's okay. And in general, they really just appreciate it. Um, so yes, you need to find the GP that works for you because to me, the beauty of general practice is knowing your patients and knowing them as a whole person. Um, and in order to do that, we need time. Yep. And that includes the menopause. We should go back to the menopause. Lose <laughs> the menopause too. Finish how we started. Thank you so much for your time. I, I, that was so much more covered than I, I don't know what my expectations were, but you've exceeded them. Thank you. Thank you. You're more than welcome. No, that was really awesome. And I, you know, I, I made that little joke about knowing the answer to that question. I learned a hell of a lot during that podcast. So thank you so much. That's my, that's my... Um, PPD, clock it on. It was on my PDP from, from <laughs> last year to be, uh, to do a, an educational session on women's health. So that is a... Well, there you go. One hour tick, and this was the year you didn't even have to tick the box because of the exactly. appraisal changes. But anyway, yeah, um, if you guys seriously want me to come back and do cancer, I will do it. Um, do. the book is launching around February, so that's the best time for me. But I can record it from now. I mean, I'm not back at work fully until December, so for me, it makes more sense to record it um sooner rather than later. But that's entirely up to you. But I think that there is definitely, I know you guys are about diet and exercise there's definitely about that and how to manage radiotherapy and chemotherapy um what works and what doesn't work and and there are little remedies and tricks for all kinds of things everything from the metallic taste in your mouth to ulcers um but i also think about the mental health side of it um and as i said there may not be the right thing to say but there are plenty of wrong things to say yeah <laughs> and that there are plenty of things that so fascinating you. yeah yeah, because I think although we call ourselves fitness unfiltered, we're quite broad. We cover we cover just about everything health related. I like to think so. Yeah, any you know, we love just talking to fascinating people. Um, so cool. thank you. We'd love to have you. So back. do you want me to send you a book? What do you want to do? Of course we do. <laughs> okay, so if you um, send me your address, I will 
send you a book and then I don't know if you want to do a giveaway or something yeah. there was so what we'll say is like like we will we what we'll do is we'll post a competition along with this so um guys when we post this podcast we will do something in the show notes we haven't actually decided what that will be yet have we guys but it will be a competition of some sorts and you can you can win philippa's book and then everyone will be happy well not everyone the person who wins the book will be happy happy. everyone else can just go and buy one everyone else can just go and buy one (laughs) okay so just send me over um someone's address and i will We'll put one in the post and then let's liaise diaries and definitely do a different one. perfect thank you before we go, thank you, you so much give, yeah. can you just give um our listeners just a little where can people find you on um the internet if they would like to follow you or get in touch further sure so my name's dr philip k you can find more information about me on my website which is www.drphilipak.com or follow me on twitter or on Instagram, the handle for both is the same, Dr. Philippa K. Like all doctors, we can't give personalised medical advice online, but we can help generally. Excellent. Thank you so much. I may or may not have said that before. Did you tell me? <laughs> <laughs> or you finish it in regular fashion. Yeah. Thanks, oh, everyone. Uh, rate, subscribe, download, all that stuff. And uh, we will catch you next time. Lovely. Thanks, guys. Nice to meet you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.